So please do open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, and as you do, as you're turning there, I'd like us to begin by thinking through a few questions, questions that we all answer in, in one way or another, uh, either intentionally or with ambiguity, uh, with ignorance. We either do that with purpose, with careful consideration, or without much thought put into it at all. These questions are, how is important is theological accuracy? How necessary is it for us to stand for truth and stand firm in biblical doctrine? Are things like the inerrancy of scripture or the historicity of biblical accounts, are those actually important for us to uphold? Or is it okay if some people waffle on those things? Let's look historically at what happens when people don't stand firm for these biblical truths. Uh, just a few hundred years ago, many of the prestigious Ivy League schools in the United States that are so revered today began as Christian universities or even seminaries. Answers in Genesis explains Harvard was named after a Christian minister. Yale was started by clergymen, and Princeton's first year of classes was taught by Reverend Jonathan Dickinson. Princeton's crest still says, De sub numine viget, which is Latin for under God she flourishes. The article goes on to explain various universities in the United Kingdom, likewise, were started by believers to promote a, a thoroughly fundamental Christian education as far back as 500 AD. Now, unfortunately, none of them now have any semblance of biblical orthodoxy. Quite the opposite. In fact, even in 1929, Henry Ironside wrote this. He said, it is a sad commentary on the conditions in Christendom that in the average theological seminary, far more time is given to the study of philosophy than searching the scriptures. A minister of an Orthodox church recently said, I, or said, you know, in 1929, I could have graduated with honors from my seminary without ever opening the English Bible. It's true of many seminaries today. And it isn't just these big name schools that are susceptible to this. Sadly, if we were to include all the organizations that began as Christian organizations, uh, primary schools that began as Christian schools and churches that once began founded on scripture but have fallen away, we'd be here all day. Now how does this happen? How does the pendulum swing so far from biblical orthodoxy? The answer is that it all begins with a subtle shift away from confident trust in the scriptures. With each of these groups, there began a drift away from the belief in the total inerrancy of Scripture, away from a confidence in the historical accuracy of the Bible, away from the necessity of Scripture for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Because subtle yet convincing arguments away from the truth led once faithful believers down a slippery slope of false teaching. So when 
They were faced with these times of uncertainty rather than standing firm. They were washed away by falsehood. And these times of uncertainty have been around for quite a while. They're here among us now in our community, in the evangelical church, and Patrick has spent the last several weeks showing the absolute hatred our world is going to have for us as believers because we are in Christ. All over the world, believers are being persecuted, being killed for their faith in Christ. And while we don't see much of that physical persecution here in the U.S., we face a far more subtle hatred that attacks our fundamental and foundational doctrines. Physical persecution, I believe, is, is coming. We're going to see that more rampant because of our faith. Many of you are, are seeing hints of that. If you work in education, you're being attacked with that already, being pressed on your beliefs to agree with and to agree to uphold unbiblical ideologies. Many of you have been or are being mistreated because of your beliefs in Scripture. But the vast majority of us aren't experiencing those things. But I'd be willing to bet that every one of us who holds to biblical truth that we are being inundated by the hatred of the world for our biblical beliefs. We maybe don't even realize it because of the subtlety of the, the world's convincing arguments and their craftiness. These arguments target that confident trust in God's word. In the same way that you can see Satan cast doubt on God's word ever so subtly all the way back in the garden. The subtlety, the persuasiveness makes you second guess the truths of scripture without really thinking about it if you aren't careful. Listen to some of these quotes from supposed Christian scholars. Man named Blomberg says, might some passages in the gospels and acts traditionally thought as, historically, as historical actually be mythical or legendary? I see no way to exclude the answer a priori. This vague attack on the historicity of scripture calls the entirety of scripture into question. The real question is, can we trust this book? Can we trust what we read in these pages? Another scholar attempting to resolve the Bible with contemporary LGBTQ plus agenda says this, he says, the problem of course isn't with the Bible, so far so good but with the interpretation that imposes a societal prejudice on texts that were not meant to address contemporary Christian people who are LGBTQ. He's essentially saying if you're interpreting the Bible in such a way that doesn't allow the LGBTQ community to, to be who they are, quote unquote, then you just must be interpreting it wrong. Blomberg again says, is it possible, even inherently probable, that the New Testament writers, at least in part, never intended to have their miracle stories taken as historical or factual? You can see how even the statement itself is, is crafted in such a way to, to just make you doubt a little bit. It's not outright stating it, but just putting that little seed of doubt in your mind. There are many, many theologians who would echo these statements. This is an attack on the trustworthiness and sufficiency of the word of God. 
We can either trust God's word in its entirety or we cannot trust God's word at all. This is not a new problem. This is the very reason for which Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. Paul had never been to Colossians. Uh, He had certainly heard of it. The church was planted by Epaphras, who likely became a believer through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and then Epaphras proceeded to share the gospel and plant a church in Colossae, which was his hometown. You see that in Colossians 4.12. When the church began to face subtle attacks of deception, the concerned pastor traveled to Rome to seek the advice and help of the Apostle Paul, among other reasons. The whole purpose of this letter is to reinforce the supremacy of Christ over all forms of deceptive false teaching. He spends the first half of the book explaining an accurate theology and the second half of the book explaining the the proper implications of that theology for each believer's life. And one of the clearest denunciations of the false ideologies they were facing is found in our passage this morning, Colossians 2.8. Look there, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. We're going to camp out here in this verse together this morning and pull it apart because in this passage we see three necessities for standing on truth in uncertain times. Three necessities for standing on truth in uncertain times. First, if we're going to stand on truth during these times, we must have defensive faith. We must have defensive faith. This is faith that is steadfast, faith that is immovable, faith that is prepared to handle any deceptions that may come. See, in the first portion of this verse, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive See to it. It's a present active imperative. This is a command. It is in the form of a a warning that must be obeyed. It is a, a necessary warning, which is why many translations render this beware or be careful, take heed. It's a serious warning with the implication of danger should you not heed this warning. It is like this this sign that is at Niagara Falls. No climbing over the railing. You don't disregard this sign. There's certain imminent danger on the other side of that rail, so you heed that warning. It's the the force that Paul has behind this. See to it. See to what, Paul? See to it that no one takes you captive. This is a reference to anyone who might have any kind of influence over you and your thinking. This is interesting. We we often very carefully listen to some and, and are yet very unguarded in areas of our lives that greatly impact our thinking. We tend to have our, our guard up our radar radar on when we hear someone preach that we're unfamiliar with, as we should. We we want that to be the case. We want to be good Bereans, right? We need to examine the word when someone is preaching to ensure that they are being biblical. But far too often, 
We don't approach other areas of our lives with that same concern. More and more, those who are are being instructed in school settings need to examine what's being taught in the lens of Scripture. Or, you may have your guard up all, all the time until that soothing light of your phone flicks on shines in your eyes. Suddenly that filters down. I'm just looking for some entertainment, after all. Surely won't be impacted. I'm just looking for something funny or interesting, some article or reading the news. I'm just catching up on social media. See what's going on in other people's lives. There's no reason to be concerned about what other people are saying on there, right? You could apply this same thing to movies, to shows, to music, to books, etc. We need to take the same care in every area of our lives as we do when we listen to someone preaching the word of God. Because we're being inundated every day by a variety of people's worldviews and we need to evaluate it from a biblical worldview. We must see to it that no one takes you Captive. I find this phrase fascinating. This is violent wartime kind of language. One commentary explains this rare word, which occurs only here in the New Testament, likely means to carry off as booty or plunder, as you would the spoils of war after conquering an army, uh, an enemy. Similarly, Douglas Moo says the verb translated in this way vividly expresses the danger that the readers may be carried off as plunder by an alien and fundamentally anti-Christian form of teaching. Paul paints a picture here of spiritual captivity, being dragged off as a captive. These false teachers come in with seemingly good intentions and biblical-sounding arguments but they're nothing less than stealth missiles to break down barriers in your mind and take you spiritually captive by falsehood. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus describes this. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look good, they sound good, but their message is not biblical. It doesn't align With scripture, Jesus says, beware, look out, watch out. Paul's words, see to it. These same warnings are all over the New Testament, Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. 2 John, verse eight, watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but you may receive a full reward. Second Peter 3.17, you therefore, beloved, know this beforehand and be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Over and over and over, we see that we are called to be on the defense. We are called to be on guard, to be ready We shouldn't be caught off guard or surprised when some subtle deception creeps in. We must be prepared, be on watch, beware, be on guard, see to it that we are not taken captive by anyone. So how do we do this? 
What is the the foundation for this defensive faith? How will we be able to spot these subtle false deceptions so that we are not taken captive? That brings us to the second necessity for standing on truth in uncertain times. We must not only have a defensive faith, but we must also have diligent knowledge. Diligent knowledge. Look again in your Bibles at this verse. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. Here, Paul explains that we need to be diligent in identifying unbiblical and unchristian thinking. If we're going to defend against subtle heresies that attack biblical orthodoxy, then we need to have diligent knowledge ourselves. He identifies here two problems and two sources of those problems. The problems are philosophy and empty deception, and the source of those problems, you see, are traditions of men and elementary principles of the world. Let's look at each of these individually. First, you see, philosophy is one of the problems. It's a compound Greek word combining the word philo, which means love, and sophia, meaning wisdom, literally a love of wisdom. It sounds like a good thing here, but Paul is talking about the pursuit of earthly human wisdom apart from God. John MacArthur puts it this way, He says, philosophy is man's effort to ascertain ultimate causes in the earth and the universe. Throughout the history of the world, man has pursued an understanding of what caused all that is, why it is, what it is, where it is going, and what its intent and purpose is. Man has sought the reasons for existence, the purpose of living, and of all the phenomena of the universe. It is all one great mystery for man. Paul encountered some of these philosophers in Athens. He gained an audience in Acts 17 of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and what did he do when he's talking to these uh, supposed brilliant minds? Did he come to them with genius human arguments? No, he, he came to them and told them about creator God. The philosophers who attempt to understand life apart from God are described in Romans 1, 21 and 22. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Humanity has for centuries, for millennia, tried to figure out life apart from God. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And the result is foolish pursuits of their own self-proclaimed wisdom. God, God says this is, this is just foolishness. Paul goes to great lengths in 1 Corinthians to contrast the wisdom of God with the foolishness of man and of human philosophy that, that carries itself as though it is wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, 19 to 23, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, 
God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. He continues in chapter three. It says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. You can't come to God through the wisdom of this world. You can't fathom God through the wisdom of this world. That's foolishness. Instead, you must become foolish in the eyes of the world by clinging to the truth of the gospel, by clinging to the truth of this book. But sadly, even among believers, human philosophy is now being promoted as wisdom. One Christian high school teacher assigned an article to read with the following quote. It says, I think we almost always lead with experience first. And wisdom is the art and science of experience. The Bible can be a wonderful moral aid on the journey, but when we use it as a a rule book, which he earlier describes as having absolute truths, we often end up betraying our own moral compass, since rules are often a way to control while wisdom is the path to freedom. This is foolish philosophy of man telling you to depend on your own understanding, your own experience, and and your own moral compass rather than submitting yourself to the truth of God's word. That's foolishness. The author of that article needs to read Jeremiah 17.9. It says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if that, is, if that is the condition of my moral compass, I need something else to point true north. Because my own philosophy is deceitful at best. The second problem Paul points out is empty deception. The two words here, empty deception, depict a promise of pleasure with the result of pain. Some describe it as a, a baited hook looks nice, looks shiny, looks yummy. As soon as you bite it, you're snared. Paul describes this in Ephesians 5, 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 6, 20. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Our minds again turn to the deception of Satan in the garden as the first example of this. His words were filled with hollow, empty lies sprinkled with just enough truth to make it convincing. The the beautiful allure of of divine, knowledgeable fruit came with the biting sting of death. The philosophy and empty deception we see here were in the Colossian church in at least four areas that Paul addresses uh, here in chapter two. We see humanism here. 
Um, There's also legalism in verses 16 and 17, mysticism in verses 18 and 19, and asceticism in verses 20 through 23. For the sake of time, we're not going to look at each of these. You can go and look up those verses later. You'll see them there. They're, They're very clear. All of these, though, carry with them the external appearance of wisdom, but in reality delivered deception and emptiness. They looked religious, they seemed religious, but they're far from it. And that is because of the two sources from which they are derived. They are according to the traditions of men and the elementary principles of the world. The traditions of men is that first source. These are ideas that are handed down by people or groups of people yet have no foundation in scripture. Philosophical ideas have much of this. They have much of their source in tradition because many, for many and many and many of years, have clung to these. They've been led astray by them, so they have a broad base of tradition upholding them and promoting them. But just because there is a vast support from tradition does not make something true. Jesus confronts this foolishness in Mark 7, verse 8 saying that they were neglecting the commandment of God, you uphold the tradition of men. The Pharisees had come to Jesus and confronted he and his disciples on perceived sin because of tradition and not because of scripture. This is a huge problem in the church. Holding to extra-biblical tradition is one of the greatest reasons that people leave churches and float around to different churches. Something's done that is different from how it's always been done or how they've always liked it to be done. And so they get up and leave. They've been out of shape and they're gone. This is elevating human preference, human tradition to the place of biblical truth. That's called sin. Man-made traditions that are not founded on scripture are called preferences. They should be held with an open hand. They're far greater fish to fry than extra biblical preferences. Experienced this in uh, the church where I served in California. It was a Baptist church when we first arrived. Uh, Over time, the elders decided to change the name from Placerita Baptist Church to Placerita Bible Church. Uh, The idea was brought before the congregation at the members' meeting. Uh, Nothing was changing doctrinally. Nothing was changing in any of the ministries. Nothing was changing with the preaching. Nothing uh, else was was changing with the church. It was solely a a change in the name. That was it. So the sign out front was going to change also, I guess. The majority of the congregation was in agreement with the change, but there was one man who came to the elders objecting to the change. Uh, he had been a member of the church. I think it was about 40 years he'd been there, a very long time he was a member. Some of you are like, I've got 10 years on that guy at this church. 20, please. He said, he told the elders flat out, if you change the name of the church, I will leave. And you know what? When the, when the name changed, he left. He left and he went to another Baptist church down the road that was preaching a watered-down, easy-believism gospel. Feel-good messages every Sunday with little biblical content. 
but you know what? Baptist was in the name. Now I wonder if there are some of you in here today with some similar kinds of convictions that aren't grounded in scripture. You may feel that way about being Baptist. If that example offended you, you can send complaints to Patrick at ebcmv.org. It's P-A-T-R. You may have other traditions that you hold to so tightly with a closed fist you, you will not part with them. I won't do it. This is what church looks like, whether you like it or not. I don't care if it is in the Bible. Now, you wouldn't say that. That would be not like Jesus. Are those things more important than the Bible? I could list specifics, but we get complaints from this body, believers. This body that consume discussion in our elder meetings sometimes is shameful. Oh, that we would be more consumed with truth than we are our own comfort, our own preferences. Let us be found as those who heed Christ's words and not neglect the commandments of God for the traditions of men. Second source that Paul mentions of philosophy and empty deception are the elementary principles of the world. The principles here are are basic elements of learning. Many commentators liken this to the the ABCs. These are just basic building blocks. One commentator explains it this way. He says, Paul's thought is this. To return to philosophy would be to cast away the mature teaching of the Bible for the infantile, impoverished opinions of an immature religion, drawing its existence from this world and not from God. You have the supernatural, divine revelation at your disposal that can expose to you the knowledge of life, knowledge about your creator, knowledge about the purpose of life, knowledge about who you are as a human, the characteristics of humanity and how we are to live, what life after death looks like. And it's just a small sampling. It's a big book. Why would you turn your back on those realities and return to the futility of your own understanding, the elementary principles of the world. Galatians chapter four, verse three, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We jump down to verse eight. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by which, by, which by nature are no gods, But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. In Christ, you are set free from foolish thinking. So why would you turn back, Paul's saying? He specifically, back in Colossians chapter 2, connects this with legalism. Verses 28 through 23, if if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men? 
These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. That's the subtlety of this deception, is it has that appearance of wisdom. It's very convincing, very convincing. That's why so many are led astray. The overwhelming picture painted here is that immature believer or unbeliever that turns their back on the, on the truths of scripture and returns to foolishness of philosophy and empty deception. See this in Hebrews 5.12 also. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles and oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. You've heard the gospel, and I, I thought you were ready to handle some deeper tenets of theological truth to spur you on in your Christian growth, but now here you are turning back to elementary principles of philosophy and, and human tradition, empty deception. You need to be reminded again of the elementary principles of God. We must see to it that we're not taken captive by these things. Ephesians 4.14 explains we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We're no longer to be children like that, tossed back and forth. It's a picture of someone that's just per constantly being pushed around by different truths. Every new idea floating around on the internet or on the news is just launching you into something else that you're going to stand for over Christ. You're not to be that person. You're not to be pushed around by every passing ideology. 2 Peter 3.17, we read it earlier. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away, taken captive by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Far too often, Christians are, are like, like ships without a captain that haven't been properly moored to the dock and are carried out to sea and tossed around. Every philosophical foolishness that comes, there's, there's no steadfastness in this man. How then are we to reclaim and stand firm on biblical orthodoxy with diligent knowledge? Many would say it is by studying the various philosophies of the world so that we're educated and can debate them well. I would disagree with that. I think Solomon makes it clear in Ecclesiastes 12.12 12 regarding the, the pursuit of earthly man-made wisdom, philosophy, you might say. Solomon says, but beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Side note for just a second, I'm continually surprised that that isn't a more common memory verse among students, <laughs> especially homeschoolers. Mom, excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body, don't you think? It's done enough for today. That's not Solomon's point. He recognized in his pursuit of human philosophy that it's all just empty and useless. Go read Ecclesiastes, it's amazing. You can devote yourself to books your entire life to gain human wisdom and in the end find yourself just weary and still without real answers. 
What does he say is the solution? What's Solomon say? The very next verse, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. How do we develop this diligent knowledge in order to, to have that defensive faith? It's by studying the truths of Scripture. We must have such a diligent knowledge of the Word of God that we can spot an error a mile away. The same way that those who are, are trained to spot counterfeit bills in U.S. currency, they don't study the various methods of printing counterfeit money. They study the real deal so that they know it, backward, forward, upside down, inside out, they know it so that when they see a fake, they can spot it right away. Not even a problem. They don't even flinch. Should be our commitment to the scriptures. So tell me, beloved, of your commitment to the word of God. Do you spend more time poring over the pages of scripture that are able to purify your soul or are you captivated by scrolling through digital content that promotes philosophy and empty deception? And it's endless. It'll just keep, it'll keep scrolling. It doesn't stop. The more you expose yourself to God's word, the more your mind will be sharpened to identify those subtle attacks of deception. If you're going to have defensive faith, then you need to have diligent knowledge of God's word. And this is going to come from the third necessity for standing on truth in uncertain times, and that is a devoted relationship to Christ. Paul continues in verse 8 with contrasting captivity. Look at verse 8 one more time in your Bible. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Don't be taken captive by these things over here. Rather, you need to be carried off and taken captive by Christ. The entirety of your life should be characterized by being captivated by him. These things should not allow you to be pushed back and forth or carried away because you're already fully captivated in Christ. One commentary notes, Paul considered the philosophy to be grounded in principles that were in concert with powers diametrically opposed to the Colossians' new life in Christ. Consider the source of arguments when you hear them, when you read things, when you hear things, when you think on things from your own deceptive mind, is the source of that human wisdom or is it godly wisdom? Is the source of that man's truth or is it real truth? MacArthur again states, this is every person's story every person's choice because everyone is either captured by human philosophy, human wisdom, human reason, human logic, or complete in Christ. Every human being lives by either man's wisdom or God's. It's every one of your choices every day. And it's not going to get easier. It's going to get more difficult as time goes on. The world is going to continue to get more deceptive in their philosophy, more crafty. 
more empty in their ideology and more aggressive in their argumentation. So we must be attached all the more to Christ, our sure and steady anchor. He is our true north. He is our anchor. He is our guiding light. And that's what Paul just finished saying right before verse eight. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. We look around and at the, the confusion, the some cases absolute insanity in our world's thinking and it is only those who are rooted and grounded in Christ in a devoted relationship with your savior that will not be swept away by the tidal wave of philosophy. How are we to respond to philosophy and empty deception? We're to be absolutely captivated by Christ. Paul uses this wartime kind of language in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to sum up exactly what we've seen this morning. He says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. We are to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ rather than being taken captive by philosophy and empty deception. In conclusion, turn back to John 15. I know. You thought you were going to get a break from John 15 for one week. You got it last week, so we're going to John 15 this morning. John 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The world is going to, to hate you if you are in Christ, and it should, because you are saying the exact opposite of what they want to believe. It should be no surprise, because you stand for Christ, you stand for truth, you are not going to allow yourself to be taken captive by the rest of the world and their philosophies and deceptions, and the world doesn't like that. And we're seeing that more and more, are we not? What should surprise you is if the world does not hate you. If you examine your life and there's no one in your life that stands in opposition to the beliefs that you hold, the truths that you stand for, the Lord that you serve, then you are either an unbeliever or you're a chameleon Christian. No one even knows what you believe. 
If you're not a believer this morning, I, I wanna call you to come to Christ in repentance and faith today. The world has a lot of answers and they're all empty and are gonna leave you wanting. But Christ has the power to save your soul, to forgive you of sin, and to grant you purpose in life. Come to him this morning. And if you're a chameleon Christian, beloved, it's time to shed your skin and stand up for Christ and for truth in this world. This world is filled with lies, it's filled with deception, they're they're constantly grasping at straws for any amount of hope in life. And they're gonna hate you. They're gonna hate you for claiming that you have the answers. How arrogant of you to think you have truth. But it's not from you, it's from God and you only have it because of his grace and mercy in your life. They may all hate you, but some, some may turn and come to Christ themselves, come to the true and living God. So stand firm in Christ. You must have a defensive faith, a diligent knowledge, a devoted relationship with Christ if you hope to stand for truth in uncertain times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you all the glory this morning because you have granted to us all that we need for life and godliness. In the pages of this book that we hold in our laps. And forgive us, Father, for the times that we have neglected the word you've given to us that is able to save and purify, that gives us insight and knowledge of who you are, of who we are to be. Father, let us be bold in a world Filled with lies, let us be bold with truth. Just as bold as they are with lies, if not more so. Give us wisdom. Be glorified, Lord, as we cling to the truth of your word and not our own ideas, not our own philosophies, not human tradition or empty deception, but we cling to Christ. Be magnified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.